Mind Body Connection podcast. The Body and Mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker. Hi, and a very warm welcome to this episode of the Mind Body Connection. I'm Dr. Phil Parker, and today I'm interviewing the amazing Dr. Cosima Locher. Uh, she's currently based, as you'll find out, in Switzerland, but she also works at Harvard. She's a research fellow there. And she specializes in looking at pain, the placebo effect, the mind-body connection. And in this interview, uh, we talk about how attitudes towards placebos are in healthcare, how your attitude towards taking a pill makes a difference, and so much other stuff. She's done so much interesting research, so I think you'll find it a fascinating interview. Um, so welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's really, really lovely to meet you. And where are you today? Where are we speaking to you from? So today I am in Switzerland. I'm in Lucerne today. Um, usually at the moment I'm in Harvard um, and I'm also collaborating with Basel. So I'm a bit, you know, um, moving at the moment. <laughs> and you've worked with some extraordinary people. So the Harvard team are very interesting people, some of whom we're interviewing. So I'd like to start these um, interviews by asking a simple but also slightly complicated question, which is, so we're discussing the mind-body connection. What for you is the mind-body connection? How do you describe it? Yeah, I think that's not at all an easy question, is it? So <laughs> for me, um, the mind-body connection is in a way, or let, let me say it differently, the placebo is a very good example from my point of view for the mind-body connection. And it helps me to understand that. That's where I come from. So let me explain in my kind of um, background how I would define it. So I think um, a good example is probably pain. If a physician and a patient meet and the patient has pain and receives, let's say, a placebo without knowing it, so a sugar pill without any active ingredient. And then this sugar pill without any active ingredient has in the end an effect. And the question is how how is that possible? Something that is inert has a bodily effect on the body, on physical pain. And what happens there is that I think we have mind things going on so from the patient's um you know perspective we could say this particular patient has some expectations um, maybe they are shaped through his um, experiences that he or she had through the cultural context um, through you know learning mechanisms so maybe he googled something in advance so he has some <laughs> expectations right and then there is the physician, and this physician also has some expectations. Maybe he or she thinks, yes, this is the best treatment I can give this patient, or is not convinced at all. Um, and then we have the relationship between the two of them. So there are many, many things going on which shape, in a way, I would say, the mind. And then, in the end, have um, a bodily connection uh, or show itself in the body, you know, with, for example, the reduction of pain that there is a connection, that this connection is very complex and that these two entities are in a way, you know, intertwined. So they are related um, in a strong way. I think that's how I would define it with my background. Yeah, excellent. So, so when I ask this question, we get lots of different answers. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the interesting points is, is as soon as we use the word mind and body, and connection we are separating them because you can only connect things that are <laughs> separate that are separate um 
and whether yeah. some people would argue well that's that's coming from a wrong position to start with or in an in inaccurate position that there is no separation that, that it, it yeah. works as a system what's your take on that yes i i would completely agree on that and i think it it can be very very um even harming if we um you know see these as separated entities so let me give an example um I think a good example would be probably chronic primary pain. So things like fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic low back pain, complex regional pain syndrome, chronic migraine. So things where you know patients suffer, they suffer a lot. So they have chronic pain for more than three months. Usually they have either emotional distress or functional disability. So in a way of, you know, they, their daily life is... Um, in a way restricted because of the pain and maybe they have a depression or you know not only with pain but also as a whole human being um, and then it's very different from a broken ankle because we can't find a clear cause sometimes so sometimes physicians have to say you know we can't figure out where this pain exactly comes from and if we see now mind and body very unconnected this can result in the very wrong assumption that it's all in their heads. So in a way of saying, you know, um, this is not real. And this is obviously a huge stigmatization, which is very, very problematic. And I think um, which comes that, um, from an oversimplified understanding of mind and body. And uh, I think that's really problematic. And obviously the pain itself is real. It's in the body. <laughs> So um, this shows to me that this is very complex and that I would definitely agree that mind and body can't just be separated from each other. Yeah. Yeah, pain is a really interesting example of that, obviously, because, you know, there, there is the, the, the localized, you know, where the pain is experienced or possibly where the, you know, the muscles are tense. But we also know that a lot of the pain is the perception in, in the neurology, you know, that, 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 that they say pain is in the brain as well. And, and I know you did an interesting study about nocebos. So everyone hopefully listening will know nocebos are the twin twin brother or sister of placebos, which is where people have a negative response to some intervention, not because of the intervention, but because they have a negative response to it. Um, and uh, you've done some some studies again on pain and, and nocebos. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Because I know that leads into ideas of expectancy and prognosis, and particularly when physicians can't identify the cause, that there, that there seems to be a negative effect of that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I did a theoretical paper when it comes to nocebo effects also in psychotherapy. Um, and this is it is somehow related to pain as well, because it shows, um, you know, that what patients hear from the physician is very key. So, um, if you say, you know, to a patient, um, I can't find a cause, I'm sorry, <laughs> this is very disappointing and patients feel, you know, not trust. So they feel that their physician is not trustworthy um, and they feel disappointed and they don't have an answer to their questions. Um, so this is a very different message from saying to trying to explain why probably, um, you know, there is maybe no clear um Course, but then you could uh, use, let's say, metaphors, which is something we know from psychotherapy that is very helpful. So you could say the patient, um, a broken ankle, if we compare the body to a computer, 
um, you could say a broken ankle is something like um, a hardware problem. So you can quickly fix that, right? A hardware, so maybe you change something, you screw something, and then it's fine again. But with a software problem that in a way affects the whole system, it's not so easy. But still, it's all there. So there are many, many metaphors out there, and I'm sure you know many of them. So I wouldn't say, you know, there is not the perfect metaphor, but it's rather more to try to find a shared narrative together with the patient so that he or she understands. And to use metaphors or, you know, analogies where you feel that the patient can attach to his own perceptions and, you know, um, worldview in a way. So I think this is very important that we try to find shared words and shared narratives. This is something I did a lot in my research um, talking about finding meaning making via using words. Um, this is something I think is most helpful that the patient feels understood. Yeah. Yeah. And that word meaning we know is, is, um, is very important in, in descriptions of the placebo effect, you know, about yes. that we know that the, the pill that somebody gets <clears throat> cannot have an effect because there's nothing in it so that there's nothing to affect. But when we look at the meaning, the interpretation of how people feel that. And I think also with the, the example you gave about, um, you know, if you say, I, if the physician says, we have no idea what's going on, we can't find the cause, that it does break trust. But when they move it to, we have a very good understanding, it's just a bit complicated and let's explain mm -hmm. it in a, in a, in a way that it, then you move beyond, I don't know what's going on. So yeah, we do understand it. It's just you know, finding our way through it. And then suddenly everybody is, oh, okay, well, there is there is some sense to this because there's nothing worse than consulting a, a professional and finding them scratching their heads and they, they have no idea what's going on with you. And we see this a lot, I would yeah. say. It's a very common thing in people um, with chronic problems because they've been to so many physicians and, and, yeah. and often complementary therapy practitioners and getting very different versions of what's going on and getting more and more confused and, and not knowing where to go. Uh, yeah. And with, uh, for instance, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome and ME, you get a lot of that, a lot of very um, people who are quite clear this is the truth and yet there are seem to be multiple truths and people then get very confused about what to do with that. Excellent. So <clears throat> you're, you're in this field, um, which is a kind of weird place to be, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> yeah. mind-body connection is it's a fascinating place to be, but, it, you know, it's not something that most people come bump into. So how did you, how did you get into it? What intrigued you about this? Oh, so that's, um, I think it started for me, Funny enough, uh, in my family, some people were, you know, doing psychotherapy themselves, either they gave them or they took them, whatever. And um, my mother always said, you know, you could even bake a cake with your patients. It doesn't matter. So that, that's very funny that she told me that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, <laughs> she said, yeah, it's all about, you know, having a good bond. Um, and I think I, I believed that very early on. So that, that's a, really a sentence that somehow stuck into my head. And I think then what happened is that I was studying psychology and I was a help assistant at a division that I was not really happy with. So I was in cognitive um, psychology that didn't really interest me. And then a new professor came with, you know, this focus on contextual factors, so more from the psychotherapy, um, uh, I would say, kind of way or path. Um, and he was actually saying, you know, 
actually could bake a cake. <laughs> and for me, that was like, oh, that, that's what I, you know, um, that's what I want to do. And then I was very, I would say, motivated to, to um, start working there. And that, that was somehow the beginning to me. It shapes really, you know, my, my whole understanding of, funny enough, mind, body. So I, I, I feel that it changes not only how I do research, but also what I do in my whole what I do in my own life or how I react if I'm sick myself. And that gives me some kind of motivation to stay in the field because it, 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 it's a tangible field for myself. So it feels like I can learn a lot for myself, but also for my practice and for, um, you know, how I um, deal with daily life things as well. So this is for me a big motivation to have a translation into my own life into my own um yeah I would say that that's very important to me and is for me an important factor um and then I think through placebo um I had a whole change of concept so the placebo at the beginning was in a way a bit of an inert term for myself so it's it's not about placebo anymore or not only about placebo anymore but it's rather more about the mechanisms behind and how we can harness them so that that, that that's somehow I would say that is what strives me in this field. So you've done lots of research, having a look through your so extensive collection of research papers. Um, what for you is, uh, either in your own work or other work that you've read, what for you is some of your favourite pieces of research or really important pieces of and impressive parts of research about the mind-body connection you think oh, that, that is a paper that everybody should read that the central concept of that is so important is there one that stands out for you uh, i have a bit two paths where i feel these are important so the first part for me would be providing evidence um because i believe if you talk in front of physicians or if you talk in front of the public it's important that you have numbers and facts so one of a good a, co a good colleague of mine is always saying facts are friendly and I, I believe that. So I think for me that's the, the first thing I would say that is important. Um, and there I'm quite fond of meta-analysis and network meta-analysis. You, you have many studies out there, let's say examining how effective placebos are compared to antidepressants in a specific field, for example in depression. Um, and it is, I think, very crucial to combine the existing evidence and to make something like a pooled estimate of what is happening um, because you know maybe one study finds something completely different from another one and if you pool these and have some ideas which are um, you know where you can generalize the results so this is for me a first thing I would really recommend to everyone if you feel that you have a question that you want to answer. For example, um, you know, that can be a very, I had recently an email from a mother um, who said she did read one of my meta-analyses where it's about antidepressants in children and adolescents suffering from depression and anxiety and OCD. What are the main conclusions? So I told her that I'm not a practitioner, that I can't give her any advice from abroad. <laughs> That's not possible. That's not what we can do as researchers. But we can provide something like, you know, um, a, a general conclusion, like a starting point that you then can discuss with your um, psychotherapist or with your clinical expert. So it's never 
studies, meta-analysis don't advise for a single person, but it's a good starting point to have some arguments and some understandings. So this is something I think um, also when it comes to placebo, you know, very basic question, do I want to give my child an antidepressant or not? Um, it's a good start, uh, starting point for, you know, augmentations and um, there is not a single and easy answer on that. So it can be good, <laughs> but um, maybe other ways are also good. The second thing when you say what I would recommend or what in a way is, you know, an important finding, I think the second thing is to ask ourselves, how can we harness now these placebo effects? So they are there. And placebos are usually inherently linked with the idea of this is deception, it is fake, but they are very effective. So how can we harness that? And I think there I would definitely recommend everyone to read open label placebo studies. And I think maybe the study from Kapchuk and colleagues from 2010, which was somehow the starting point. So it's almost 10 years ago um, where they, you know, for the first time, try to find a way how to harness these placebo mechanisms. What they did is they had patients suffering from irritable bowel syndrome. And um, in one group, they openly told the patients that they are receiving now a placebo. But that's not the end of the story. So they were really having you know, a conversation, which I think is crucial. So they explained to the patients um, why this could be effective. Um, you know, learning mechanisms and the things I talked about before, they are also providing evidence, you know, saying we know that the placebo is powerful, so this will, you know, enhance expectations as well. Um, and they are saying it's quite important that you take the pills regularly, maybe twice a day. And um, I think a fourth thing is also to say it's fine to have doubts. I guess that's very crucial because patients feel taken seriously. It's a bit of a crazy idea, if we are honest. Um, and I think this field now in the 10 last years developed quite quickly. And it's a field I'm very interested in. Um, it's a field where I myself did a study with experimental pain. And I think the nice thing with experimental pain is that we were able to compare this open label placebos to deceptive placebos. This will be really hard, um, I would say, with, you know, a clinical population, but because you can't um, deceive patients 100% or it's very hard to do. <laughs> um, and with experimental pain, we have this possibility. So, and we could show that actually deceptive placebos and open label placebos did not really differ significantly from each other. Um, Obviously, this would have to be translated into clinical practice, but I think it's just a very, very interesting result in itself. And we also found that the narrative is important. If you don't say patients why these open label placebos are, are working, um, they don't work. So the rationale is, is, is crucial. Um, and I think these are for me the two, at the moment, I would say the two fields that really interest me. Yeah. yeah, I think the open label placebo stuff, which in case anybody doesn't quite understand what that means, because um, it's slightly jargony, it means you're telling people this is a pretend pill, this is a dummy pill, it doesn't have any therapeutic 
uh, 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 pharmaceutical ingredients that's open label whereas closed label or deceptive placebo is where you pretend that it is the real drug and you and you don't tell them that it's fake and and there's been this question for a long time or, or this thought that you know placebos only work through deception through people through fraud uh, but it turns out and your study is a good example of this that it doesn't it's not true at all that you can tell people this is a placebo or have the same effect as your pretend placebo your placebo you don't tell them that you're giving them uh, but what you identified was what's really important is the conversations you have about why this works if you're just saying I'm going to give you this it's got nothing in it so there's no rationale there's no explanation then it doesn't have an effect but if you explain why it works, even though it contains no no medicine, no no pharmaceutical agents, then it will have an effect, which then brings on these whole really interesting conversations about what's going on. Because some of the other studies that um, some of the other interviewers have done were where they are measuring the actual physiological changes, so the production of dopamine or the changes in you know levels of oxytocin and all sorts of other things that. Are genuinely produced within the body as a result of these expectations so it's really really interesting studies um, and you've recently done uh, i think a translation of the heal uh, the h-e-a-l the he uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that about it what the heal project is what the the general understanding of uh, that model is yeah so um i think the heal is also <laughs> you know in a way um how should I say, uh, it's, it's a chance to use and measure um, placebo mechanisms. So as I said, I think we have placebo as a concept, but then we have the mechanisms behind it, like the patient-physician interaction, expectations, how you perceive the whole um, encounter in a way, you know, do you like the room where your treatment takes place? Um, maybe your beliefs, so even spirituality. Um, so different things which shape how much you, in a way, um, expect something to work. So the heal is completely, in a way, the concept of placebos, but it's measuring all these, we call them sometimes non-specific factors. They are called non-specific because we would say in a pill, the specific ingredients are the pharmacological ingredients. And then we have the so-called non-specific ingredients, which are the things I have just um, listed. Um, I don't personally like the term non-specific. I think for me, the more I do placebo research, I think we should say, um, let's you know, get to have the understanding to make the non-specifics specific, because for me, they are, you know, they are specific as well. So other terms are contextual factors or common factors, uh, which I like more because you can say they're common to every treatment that you do. So either if you go to psychotherapy or if you swallow a pill, these common factors, they play a role. And um, the heal is now trying to, in a way, measure these common factors. So, you know, to measure how how much do you expect this treatment to work? How trustworthy do you think your um, your physician is? Um, do you like the room where your treatment takes place? And what I really like, so the heel has been developed by um, another working group and we translated it into German. And what I like about the heel is the idea that it's a whole question battery 
but that you can adapt it to the specific context where you work. So you can say, you know, in my context, I would say the rooms are quite important and the physician, but maybe spirituality is not really the thing that I want to examine. So you can, in a way, adapt the questionnaire to your patients and to your own questions. That's what I like about it. So you can choose the items that you feel they are important for your questions. And I think we have really the challenge in general how we can operationalize um, the whole non-specific or common factors. It's really hard to measure them because they're quite implicit. Um, and I think for me, the heal was just a good starting point of saying, all right, um, this is a quite generic questionnaire to assess these things. And maybe for clinical practice, it's interesting to measure these things. I think that uh, the, the HEAL um, model is, is very interesting. It brings together a lot of the stuff that I've observed over the years clinically. Um, I would, I kind of prefer, I think, a, a phrase like influencing factors, so that the things that have huge influence, because if we look at them, I've got a little list of them here. The first one is um, uh, treatment expectancy. So that's your views of your, you know, what you think is likely to happen what your relationship is like with your healthcare provider, uh, your views about the connection between them and the staff, the environment, how confident you are, what your optimism levels are, so how positive you are. I know you've done some studies on that as well. Your spiritual beliefs, um, and I think beliefs generally, and also your beliefs about this particular intervention, whether you think it's stupid or brilliant or fantastic or if the the queen of sweden's having it you know all those things will have a massive difference but, yeah. but what's interesting about that is for me those things are obviously important from from my work in clinical practice and i know for a long time those things were kind of at least in in research we we tried to remove them because they're you know inconvenient from a statistical point of view but they are so so important and that was a really nice phrase that uh, andrea ever said when i interviewed her she said if you if you are having an intervention and you don't think the intervention will work she she recommend don't have the intervention until yeah, you yeah. until you've gone beyond that otherwise you will be getting in your own way which is such an interesting position to come from because that's so you know not where we were 20 30 years ago i mean cl clinically certainly clinicians noticed this but from a research perspective all those factors were difficult and tried to be removed so it's, it's a really interesting turnaround that we've got this fascination with this new well not new this ancient part of the mm -hmm. healing system so um you took one of your studies about optimism um and whether optimism made a difference uh and mm -hmm. that was pain i think it came wasn't it yeah and do you want to talk a little bit about that what you found yeah maybe i can make a little remark if it's fine on your um what you said just before um and then come to my optimism optimism study so i think this is really key to have the understanding that if a patient um, or, you know, we ourselves don't believe in something, we shouldn't um, do it. And it changes the whole ethical considerations. So if you think, um, you know, in the classical um, point of view that you would say, 
I'm a patient, I suffer, I have a depression. Do I want to do um, a cognitive behavioral therapy or do I want to do a psychoanalysis? Um, it's all depending on the method. This is, I think, the traditional approach. It's a very different approach of saying, all right, the method is important, but these common factors or however we name them are also important. If you have this knowledge as a patient, you will not only try to find your fitting psychotherapy or treatment depending on the method, but also how comfortable do I feel with the physician? So leave that this work. Um, do I trust this pay, uh, physician? So all these things have now a value. And I think this is very, very crucial for also how we inform our patients. So I, I did a, a paper on that with, with Charlotte Bleas. And I think this is something that I think is very different from the classical point of view of saying if patients are informed that not only the specific ingredients but also these common factors play a role maybe they choose differently uh, and, and maybe gives them also some kind of freedom because if cbt didn't work it's maybe not because of cbt but maybe just because i didn't like the physician or the psychotherapist too much or we didn't match as human beings and then this um, patient would have a completely different kind of conclusion than if he or she thinks, all oh, right, that's just a method, um, so I give up. Mm. <laughs> so um, for me, this has huge ethical implications with the optimism, um, so that optimism plays a, uh, you know, a key role. Yes, so we found um, very interestingly, we did a secondary analysis on the first paper I told you about, so again, experimental pain, um, some of the patients received deceptive placebos and others open-label placebos. Um, so we did induce pain here um, on the forehand. And in a way, um, we then gave them a cream, either saying this cream will reduce your pain because it's open-label placebo or saying, you know, this is a very effective painkiller cream. Um, and we found, so we were just wondering, there are many studies out there showing that optimism is quite important for placebos to work. And we could confirm that for deceptive placebos. So there it seemed to be optimistic is important. Interesting enough, we didn't, we could not confirm that for open label placebos. So there optimism wasn't really important. And for me, it's, too early to draw final conclusions but for me this just shows that you know that we can't just translate what we know from open label placebos or what we know from deceptive placebos into the field of open label placebos so that these two concepts are very different from each other and that this is just you know a hint showing that because optimism had an effect on deceptive placebos but not on open label placebos so this shows in a way the mechanism behind these things are different. And it's important that we acknowledge open-label placebo as a new field where there is still a lot to learn. Um, and we, we face challenges in this field, which is so interesting. Um, and I think this, for me, was the main conclusion out of this paper of saying, all right, this is just a new area. And we are still, you know, we have a lot to learn. So can we translate it into clinical practice? And um, until today, the studies have been done in, I would say, you know, um, I wouldn't say privileged, but very normal um, settings. And the question is, how do, for example, open label placebos work with um, 
you know, subgroups or minorities, these are things we don't know yet at all. Or do patients who feel not trusted um, or who feel um, disappointed, how do they react on open label placebos? Or, you know, physicians are sometimes critical about them. So there is a lot to learn. Um, this is what I do also with Charlotte Lees at the moment, to learn more what assumptions are out there and what hurdles do we have. Uh, and it's a completely new field. And for me, this study was some kind of, um, you know, proof that, or it showed me that indeed these two um, areas should be disentangled from each other. That's very yeah. interesting. I've never thought about that before, that, that we may be looking at two slightly different phenomenon with open label placebos and deceptive placebos and that they're not exactly the same thing. That is interesting. And, and I know there was a question you raised in one of those papers about do do we have to reconsider what what we mean by placebo responders which is i always think an interesting term you know this this idea that some people will respond to placebos and some people won't and i think it's much more complicated than that from some of the stuff i've read that it's not a group of people it will depend a lot on what the pill is who's giving it to them what day of the week it is all that so yeah. it's not like people are placebo responders or not it's like certain things will capture their imagination or, or their placebo system at, at sometimes and not others so that's that's also really interesting um have you had much experience of people thinking this field is just a waste of time? Uh, you shouldn't be putting research dollars into this or the My Body Connection is nonsense. Does that come to you much? Or is it, do you live in a, a happy bubble of, of acceptance of what you do? <laughs> <laughs> no, gladly not. I think it's good. <laughs> so um, I think this is for me when I was in Plymouth, I had many um you know, exchange meetings with both, with physicians and with patients. And um, I think there I started to realize that not everyone is happy with this idea of open label placebos and that they have good arguments for it sometimes. Um, so, for example, I worked with patients suffering from fibromyalgia um, and they said, why should it be us? You know, um, why don't you, uh, why is it open label placebos in fibromyalgia and you know, maybe not in a broken ankle. So does this give again some kind of hint um, that it's all in your head, which I said is quite very problematic. So um, again, it really depends how you um, frame it. And some patients, they, so I have patients which said, I would definitely give it a try because I tried everything. Nothing worked before. So they are just open to give everything a chance. This is some kind of, you know, one group of patients that I had contact with. But then other patients which are more skeptical saying, yeah, but, you know, placebo are inert. So do you want to tell me that my, my symptoms are inert? So it's, um, we have to be very, very careful. And placebo has not a good reputation yet in the general public. That's a problem we face. So I think I see placebo as something very positive because I see the mechanisms behind it as very positive. But if I speak to someone, you know, a patient and saying placebo, the associations are fake, inert, sham. And um, I think we found that the narrative is so important. Obviously, I can reframe that because I believe in that. <laughs> 
but not for everyone. Maybe some patients say, no, for me, placebos are fake and sham. So why should I do that? And I think it's really important to take these um, things seriously. And then some physicians say, um, I don't have the time. That's not the problem we face. So that's something I heard a lot. You know, they said, oh, that sounds very convincing to me, very interesting. Um, so I was just giving the pill, right? Saying this is a placebo and done. And if you try to say that, no, it's not only giving the pill, it's you as a physician, it's what you say. Um, either they don't accept that or they say, that sounds really nice, but I don't have the time because we know that time is a big resource issue. So, and I, I think um, these are things that I think are, are challenging. Also what I said, what I think about now with Charlotte, please about minorities. So, um, you know, maybe some people don't really know what a placebo is and, and or, or don't have the concept of it or a completely different concept than the one we have. <laughs> so it's, it's all a bit, um, I think, it will be important to get out of this bubble and to face, you know, the challenges that are out there. Um, yeah, and there are challenges for sure. I guess if, if you think about it, uh, even the word placebo is quite elitist. It's, you know, Latin. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> Latin and medical. So, yeah, yeah I, 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 it, I, I'd be interested to know what awareness there is i mean because you and me we work we work around this all the time mind body connection placebo and we don't have a negative response to the placebo effect we see it as the best example of the innate in a pharmacy being switched on um but it would be interesting to know what other people's positions are or whether it even comes across their their radar i think most people this is not research based but i think most people recognize that things you say have an effect, you know, the, the, the relationship you have with your practitioner or your hairdresser or whoever is important. Um, so it would be unlikely to not extend that into healthcare. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see where we are. And this leads us on to kind of one of the next questions, which is, you know, where do you see the future of healthcare or research? What needs to be done? Uh, what would be the, the real turning point? what will the health system look like in 50 years? Do you hope? Good question. Yeah, do I hope? Yeah, both, all right. Um, so in my, let's say, what I would hope, <laughs> what I would hope is to make the, the non-specifics specific and to acknowledge that. So in a way of saying these common factors, they matter. So we harness them actively. And I think open labor placebos are one way of doing so, but there are other ways. So you can just be transparent with your patient and say, look, we know that it's important how you feel, how our connection is. So if it's not fine, tell me that. Or you just have to be aware that this is important and your expectations are important. So in my ideal world, it would be that they know what things work and that it's not only you know, the method, but all these common factors that patients are informed. And then that we have you know, the time to harness these factors actively, maybe with open label placebos, but also, you know, with just having the time to spend time with your patient. Um, so this, this would be like in, in an ideal world to me. And also, um, you know, to come away a bit of, um, this is maybe more in psychotherapy, um, which 
um, psychotherapeutic approach is now the better one, but rather more to acknowledge that we share all these common factors and that we are maybe closer to each other than we would assume. And that in, um, you know, in all the teaching things, let's say how we teach students and how we teach healthcare people, that they are aware of the importance of these factors. So that would be in my ideal world. The problem obviously is that we have a restriction of time since ever, and maybe, I don't know, depending on where you live in the world more and more. So, um, and what is then in a way a bit lost is the time that is somehow possible to build up a relationship, for example. And I see this as very, very, um, you know, uh, complicated or dangerous even if we save time and resources in these things, which have now shown to be important. And obviously then it's again a privilege to have these things and it's related to money, whether you have the possibility to access good clinical care. And I think when you ask me about the future in 50 years, um, what kind of importance will technology have? So um, if we now have the possibility to have an online CBT, or if we have the possibility that, you know, um, machine learning um, and artificial intelligence will have an importance in the healthcare system. The question is, um, is it possible that they can replace certain aspects of healthcare and to what extent? And these are, to me, very open questions. So maybe a machine can, you know, make some decisions when it comes to what is now the best treatment options. But is a machine also able to deliver empathy? And I'm very unsure about that. And it's not clear at all, I would say, at this point. Um, so the question is, for me, if certainly in 50 years, what importance will technology have? Will it maybe allow more patients to have access to things which are important or will it unable? These are some questions, really. And I think important questions that we raise them also in the field of placebo um, and healthcare in general. Yeah, I'm, I remember reading an interesting research article about a, um, a bit of artificial intelligence that was able to do psychotherapy in California on people, some basic <laughs> CBT. Uh, and I was very suspicious about that because I think that the, you know, the therapeutic relationship is really important and the complexity of, you know, working with a human, there is so many questions you could ask in any one given moment and each one will lead in a different direction. But the research seemed to suggest that people really liked talking to this robot because uh, it was always there for them. It, it wasn't judging them because it didn't have the capacity to judge. It wasn't going to tell anybody what they, you know, over dinner, what they said to them. And they really found it better than having a real human to talk to, that it was, in this case, a more consistent friend for them than their psychotherapist. <laughs> so there might be some solutions within, uh, within um, moving forwards in tech. But I also think there is something very special about a good interaction between yes, two I humans think. and a lot of my work is about training people to to maximize that and also the other the other interesting side of the coin is if we can train patients to maximize that even if their clinician is not very good or mm -hmm. isn't there you know who they want to see but that's who they've got how do they get most value from that interaction so that instead of it all being down to the the clinician that we both the clinician and the patient take as much of an active role as they can in getting the best as they can from that experience independent of whether it's ideal or not and then you've got more chance of it getting 
Yeah, I would definitely agree on that. So for me, yeah, I would say, um, first of all, placebo is a very humanistic thing. It's, it's, it's based in humanism or the common factor model in a way is for me quite a humanistic approach. And I think what you just said about, you know, giving back empowerment to patient is to a patient is so crucial and in a way um, that placebos are always there. So placebos are not only in the placebo pill, <laughs> but they are in psychotherapy because the mechanisms are there. They are, if you swallow an, an active painkiller and if you're aware that not only the active ingredients but all these common things play a role as well this is some kind of empowerment to me and how we can give back autonomy to patients and say you know the way you swallow this pill will have an effect on how it will work yeah it's a very active role that you take there and it gives you um, in a way the possibility to be an active person in the way you treat yourself in this understanding. So it's not only the physician treating you, but you treat yourself as a patient, depending on your attitudes that you have while you take a treatment. Um, so I think this changes the whole understanding if we see that placebos are always there and not only in an inert sugar pill. Yeah, and, and those people listening to this, if you've read any of my books, you'll know that there's one I specifically wrote, which is all about that, about particularly about the language and the, and the role that we take that is either passive or active and that is so important for what yeah. we're constantly telling ourselves about oh, there's nothing we can do or oh there is something we can do what can we take from this very 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 important and so to, to, to finish um, what for you out of all the things you've read and experienced in the field both with your mum telling telling you just bake a cake with your patients to all the research you've done um, what would be the most useful piece of information you would either give a clinician or a patient from everything that you've read for me probably what you just what i just said um about giving the patient this information um of saying you know everything that you take has common factors in it some name it placebo effects others just say it's your attitude um, it's how much you believe in it. So every, it's always there. It's about, you know, it's about having an active component in this and of, of choosing. I want to believe in that and I want to give it a try because I think that this will help me and that you are an active part in that so that you can, you know, find your personal match. So I think some patients may say acupuncture is the good thing for me because I believe in it. And because um, I know that it's maybe not the specificity of the needle that goes into my skin, but I like the ritual, I like the liver. And I think if we are well informed as patients and see um, this possibility of choosing and matching and believing in something, this is the whole empowerment again and to choose an active role. Um, I would say this is something I would value a lot. Fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really fascinating talking to you and uh, finding out some more of your the backstory of what you've been up to in the research world. Uh, I hope it's been interesting for you to, to share some of that with these people listening. I'm sure they'll get huge value from it. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you a lot. It was really a pleasure. The Mind Body Connection Podcast. The Body and Mind. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do subscribe to us on iTunes, like it, review it, 
and share it. The more people know about this, the better. And don't forget to join our podcast mailing list by going to philparker.org forward slash yes and you'll get extra stuff, bonus material and program notes. See you there.